live in a time obsessed with self-fulfillment and self-meaning, I heard a very helpful paradigm to respond to that. We'll do that and a whole lot more on this week's Corey Truax Show. We'll do that. I do have some also some thoughts in the political world as well regarding election denialism, some unhelpful things that I want to respond to there. But where I want to start is actually some news we got last week about uh, drug prices being negotiated and and settled on. And I want to have an adult conversation about the secondary effects, because one of the things I like to do on the show is inform and educate on economics generally. I think it's one of the disciplines we have most ignored. There might be even there's reason for that. A, a people ignorant of how economics works ends up just wanting free things and and artificially priced things. But there's downstream consequences of it, and I want to make sure we know those. We'll do that and a lot more on this week's Corey Truax Show. Welcome to it. I am your host, conveniently. My name is Corey Truax. Amongst other things, I get to serve uh, the awesome people of Beachwood Church at 1030 on Sunday mornings as their pastor for teaching. We'd love to have you out any given Sunday morning. Excited coming up here with some some different preachers this uh, in the season. The next two or three weeks, it'll be a good time to come out. We'd love to have you. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. These are the facts. There is, uh, I think it was nine or ten, nine or ten common prescription drugs that a new executive action under a law last year, will allow Medicare and the folks who run Medicare to negotiate those prices on, quote, behalf of Medicare beneficiaries and set the price. That's ultimately the goal here, to set a price like we did for insulin. Insulin now, I think it's 30 or $35 a month. It cannot be more than that. It sets the price. It's government control putting a price on a drug. Now, this is why everyone should read Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson. I'm actually looking at the book right now. I think it's one of the most important books of the last hundred years. You you look at that maybe, and there's an instinct you have. Uh, one of two. I think one good instinct is that's not any of the government's business. That's a good that's a good instinct. But there's another piece of instinct that just says, well, good people will now be able to get medicines they need for less. They're, both instincts don't think deeply enough. Both instincts have. Uh, I think informed in them some ideology, some some. Uh, let's go with actually instincts a pretty good word. Just preloaded assumptions about what should and should not be the case. The adult thing is to think one step past, at least one step past, past our initial knee-jerk reaction. The knee-jerk reaction of that's not the government's business, or good people get to now have drugs for less for less money. Those are I'm trying to be gentle here, but those are very shallow shallow ways of thinking and not thinking one or two, three steps deeper. I'll give you an illustration here and then we'll bring it back to prescription drugs. You know, one of the problems that we have in bigger cities, San Francisco's had this problem for a while, for a while New York City did, but not anymore, is affordable housing. Not enough units for people to live in. That's a that's been responded to in the past, especially in those two cities, with things called rent control, where the government will set a price. You can't charge, you the building owner, you the apartment owner, the unit owner, you can't set your price for rent at more than fill in the blank. 
call it $2,000. You can't set the price at greater than $2,000. So here we have a problem. There's not enough affordable housing. Here's why you don't have enough affordable housing. Too many people want to live in a place, and there's not enough units. So that the units that exist, they're very valuable. So what you really need to actually solve the problem is more units. You need more apartments. You need more places to live. And if you'll have your supply go up to meet the demand, then your prices will stabilize and even go down. This is what's going to happen in many of these emerging markets in housing. Right now, housing, housing values are way up because there's not enough houses. And in the next two or three years, when the, the housing market catches up, the builders catch up, we're going to stabilize. The, the, the prices for housing will stabilize. This is true across every economic system. If supply is too low, but demand remains high, prices are very high because the thing that you want is now very valuable. There's less, there's less of it. So what these big cities actually need is a lot more housing. You need more units. Instead, what they do is they set a ceiling on their price, but they exacerbate their own problem. Here's why. If I'm the person who develops buildings, I build multi-unit buildings so people can live in them. I look at San Francisco and New York and I go, so you're telling me if I build 100 units in your city, I can't charge the market value? I have to charge an artificially low amount? Well, I don't want to build in your city. I'm going to go to Atlanta. I'm going to go to Nashville. I'm going to go to Orlando. I'm going to go build where I can actually make the money. Why would I build in your stupid cities? I'm going to go where I can invest. I'm going to take out the risk. I'm going to finance it through some giant bank. I'm going to put up the capital to build the units. I want to be able to make the maximum money. And the thing I actually want to do is solve your problem. I actually want to put more units in. It's a virtuous circle. I will add more units. More people will live in them. It'll stabilize prices, bring down prices, and I get to make money. The thing I actually want to do to make money will help your system, but because you've artificially kept the price down, I have no incentive to do that, so I'm just going to go somewhere else, and you guys can figure it out on your own. Now, we have largely understood that about rent control. Even the, I think, the, the novice in economics can get past their emotional reaction of saying, well, it's good to have low-cost low housing. It's good. All right, there's consequences to what you're saying. There's downstream consequences. And I think people with rent control can get past their emotional response to recognize, oh, yeah, I guess there are some consequences, and we should... We should build more units instead of setting a price ceiling. Now, take that concept back over to prescription drugs. If you set a profit ceiling for your big pharmaceutical companies, Moderna, Pfizer, I can't think of the other big, the big three here. If you, set price, if you set profit caps for them, all it means is that they're going to build less units. And in medicine, that means have fewer medicines. There's, there's going to be fewer dollars to do research and development on other drugs. Now, you might say, well, that's worth it. This, I, I disagree, but I can respect that person. You, you might be the person that says, well, fine, we have the drugs we're going to have. We're going to have much less uh, development, much less research in these sciences because there's not a profit motive for these folks. We have set their price and their profit ceiling. They're going to come up with slower solutions to things that we need, but that's worth it. Okay, fine. I think you're wrong. I think that one of the things that we should want is to come up with 
more medicinal solutions to people's physical ailing. I want that. And we're going to have less of it because of it. I I think every year if you look at the few dozen medicines, almost always the the majority, and it's not close, come out of the United States. We are 5% of the world population, and we come up with more than half the drugs that end up helping people, helping people around the world. You might even argue that it's, it's kind of unfair. I, I could see this argument. It's unfair that Americans pay art, artificially, or at least they pay the first cost of these drugs, and they end up being much lower cost. The g- generics become lower cost all around the world. And that, that's another part of economics that w- we've seen with things like televisions. The first... LED and 4K TVs, they were $10,000. You could barely get them in a like a big box store. They were for the very, very wealthy, a, a 50-inch LED. And now a 50-inch LED at Walmart's like $250. Why? Well, th- there was the research and the development that Sony paid that, uh, I forgot the other name of that, uh, that other company that made a lot of those. And they had the upfront cost, the people who were willing to pay the $10,000 for the TV, they paid the upfront cost that in some ways reimbursed what the the cost was to research, develop, and manufacture this TV. And now the profit comes from me and you, the regular people going out and buying them in mass. Just We should know if we're going to do these things, we're going to put controls on these prices. There are downstream consequences. And unless it's going to be China or South Korea, unless it's going to be Western Europe, which is in decline, unless it's going to be Nigeria, which actually is improving their education systems getting better all the time unless they're going to step up and their people are going to pay the premium on these drugs you will have fewer drugs as a you'll have fewer drugs being created people will continue to suffer with the ailments they have as a byproduct of people's seeming compassion they they seem to they want to see themselves as compassionate and that is bring the cost down for people who have to buy these drugs all right well there's a generation behind you and our generation behind that and behind that one who will pay the consequences of your wanting to feel compassionate or be compassionate right now. That's at least the clear-headed adult thinking we should have when there's price controls of any sort on any market coming from any government. You're listening to the Core True Act Show wherever you find podcasts. You can respond to that or send me other things if you want on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. Find me, Corey Truax, or you can email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I heard something else I want to share with you that I thought was quite profound. One of the struggles of our age, I would maybe say the defining struggle of our age, I'm sort of almost 40, I'm 37. I guess I'm 37 and a half. I, I would say of my adult life, certainly, crisis of identity has marked our time. Yes, it has become so absurd that you have folks and small numbers of folks identifying as random genders they made up, but all of that is the culmination of a crisis of identity, not knowing who we are, and we don't know who, well, when we don't know who we are, we don't know what to do. We're all... I'm treading all kinds of ground that we've tread forever. You know, I, I know, I've covered some of this before. I'm giving you the illustration, then I'll give you the point. I, I don't know who I came across. I think it was, I think it was on Twitter. I went to someone's Twitter page, or I guess it's called X now. And the first thing I saw was 
pronouns in the bio, and they are the standard pronouns, just like he, him. And I've covered this before. There's there's an identity that the the secularists find that's almost like a a counterfeit or a response to how Christianity provides an identity. Think of just how they do that, their own symbols. What pronouns in bio, pronouns in your biography on social media, is not any different of a signal of your identity than when you go to someone's profile and they have Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, just the reference. They have Joshua one nine in their in their bio next to their name. They're telling you something about their identity. This person who put the Bible verse in their their bio wants you to know I'm a I'm a Christian. The person who put the pronouns in their bio wants you to know I'm not one, and the, this is my worldview. What, there's not really a functional difference with signaling identity between someone wearing a cross necklace or wearing a, a pride flag, a, ra- a rainbow flag. These are outward expressions of inward identity. It, and a lot of these inward I- identities take all the markings and uh, let's go with function, the functions that religions have had for a long time. People have turned... Th- inward to find their meaning, and then they put on external symbols to indicate to the rest of the world who they are and what their values are, not unlike religions. And it is that paradigm, turning inward, that I heard a really profound presentation this week from a gentleman named Trevin Wax. He is a up-and-coming name in evangelical world attached to the Gospel Coalition. Very smart guy. I think he's one of the guys who will fill the intellectual void that Keller left behind, Tim Keller left behind uh, when he died recently. The paradigm that he gives us is this. Here's how the world has been looking for meaning. They first look inward, then look outward, and then finally look upward. So they hear and imbibe the the message their whole lives, I think a lot of the stuff I grew up on gave me this message. The message is this. If you are going to find your truest self, you must look inward. You must ask you what what your truest values are, who you truly are. Only you know who you really are. I saw a super sad video this week of a a, a woman who has convinced her child that, that the child is a different sex than what, what he is. And the child is questioning that. And this six or seven year old is saying to no, I think she was he was nine, says he doesn't he doesn't know what he is. And he's asking his mother what he is, and she says back to a nine year old, only you can know that. Only you, only the nine year old can know. But that's someone who's totally bought into this idea that to find who I am, I must first look inward. I will determine who I am. Then after I have made that determination, after I've looked inward, I will then look outward. And what I look for outward are people and institutions that will affirm what I've decided about myself. They better not challenge me one bit. Tell me I'm wrong about me. No, no, no. This is one of the reasons I think marriage gets delayed in this age group. It's one of the reasons that there's so much, uh, I guess the word is bifurcation and then siloing. You put yourself in a silo of people who will only affirm you. Because I've looked inward. I know who I am. I, I know I've decided who I am and what I am. And now I'm looking outward for people to affirm me. And if you don't affirm what I have said about myself, then you're doing violence to me. And then finally, Trevin Wax presented 
after I've looked inward to find myself and then outward to be affirmed, and all of that falls apart, we start tr- those folks try to look upward. Something spiritual, something transcendent. What should be the way we actually build our identities if we are going to be thriving people that do not become captured by this high anxiety, high depression, miserable world. The way we will find identity is first look upward, knowing I, I can't possibly find my own identity, identity, identity inside myself. What, what is that? Is it what I aspire to? Is it the person I am right now? The, the truest Corey is the one I am right now, or is it the one I want to be 10 years from now? I can't possibly decide what I am. I need something outside of me. And when we look upward first, we recognize those fundamental things about myself. I'm made in the image of God. I'm a child of God. And if I know those things, then I want to please the, the Father. I want to live in accordance with the values and the, the commands that he has given. To find who I first I am first, I don't look in. The first thing I do is look up, knowing I am first a child of God. Then second, I still don't look inward. I actually do look outward. I don't look to myself to find out who I am. Now that I know I'm a child of God, I look outward, and then I find out I am this person's son or daughter. I am a member of this particular family, of this church, of this community, of this country. That's who I am. And I'll, I'll know who, what my roles are and responsibilities to those people once, I, once I've looked outward. So I'll, I'll know what to do in response to my identities because I don't develop them myself my identity is given to me at birth by who I am in relation to God the Father and in relation to other people. And then finally, once I've fulfilled my responsibilities and roles by looking upward and outward, then finally I can look inward and maybe ask some, some other things about what I should do and what I should pursue. But all of that's going to be first filtered and informed by my roles and responsibilities given to me when I looked upward and outward. So a word for you and as you train your kids. When it comes to finding identity, who we really are, and you find yourself miserable and uh, it's, it's not working, that's a good question to ask. Where have I looked? Did I look inward first? Because if I look inward first, I know the Bible tells me my heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I will mess that up. I can know who I am, what I'm supposed to do, because I look upward to God the Father, outward to those I'm related to my, my relation, responsibilities, and roles for them, and I'll know exactly who I am and what to do. And then finally, looking inward. I have for you, oh, I should remind you, you're listening to The Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for Corey Truax or email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I have a few things more for you today, including a recognition, a recognition that lately on the show, we have talked a ton about biblical law, and the goal Christians might have to try to bring biblical legal thinking into the modern world. And sometimes that's, sometimes that's hard to imagine. I, one of the ones we talked about most commonly is the, the laws around what happens when your beast, when your ox gores somebody or hurts someone else's property. Now that might not have happened to you, but the modern day analog might have happened to you. And I think that would be something like, getting hurt in a car accident or getting hurt at work. If not you, it's someone you love. Those things have real serious consequences. Car accidents and getting hurt at work 
You come away injured, the medical bills start to pile up, you lose wages, and while you're trying to recover from just being hurt, you're also trying to navigate a very hard process of getting justice and trying to put your life back together. Don't be intimidated by that. Don't be scared by it. There are people to help you with it. The one I want to introduce you to or reintroduce you to is a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms. You can Google him. That's what I did. That's what I encourage is Googling Samuel Harms, as in stay out of harm's way. That's H-A-R-M-S. His number is 864-666-6666. Samuel Harms, attorney at law. Uh, These are things, getting hurt at work or in a car accident, that you don't want to handle alone. Uh, You need someone to be on your side and work through what happens next. So reach out to him, Samuel Harms in Greenville, 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. His number is 666-6666. If you have been gored by the modern-day ox or been hurt at work or hurt in a car accident, give him a call. Don't navigate it alone. That's Samuel Harms at 666-6666. Two more things I want to do today. I I noticed this in, uh, I guess, this every, everything from here, by the way, is political. It's in polit- pol- uh, politics world. One of the things people most associated with me and my, my ideology have been frustrated with from our representatives, so representatives, let's just say, quote, on the right, is they make promises and pledges and that establishment powers never really do anything. Just think of my, my lifetime. We've never had someone actually bring down the deficit. The one year Clinton did, it's a little artificial how they did the accounting, but we got close to bring down the deficit one year. That's a pledge that doesn't get made, excuse me, that gets made and never kept. You know, there was pl- pledges that should have never gotten made because there was no way to do it, really. Uh, I'll give you an example. In 2010, the cry from people on the right, politicians on the right, the pledge was, we'll repeal Obamacare. I mean, I was at the time even just sitting out here going, well, you can't. Even if you win this election big and you even put it on the president's desk, he's going to veto that. And you don't have veto-proof majorities. You shouldn't promise this. You can't deliver it. The honest pledge would have been, we will put a bill on the desk of the president to repeal Obamacare. That's the honest thing, not we pledge to repeal it. There has been pledges from all sides that I think they use cynically, knowing that it drives people to polls, but they know they can never actually deliver. So, But one of... One of uh, the, keep it on my my side of things, that's been one of our biggest complaints, is the establishment. These people, they claim one thing, they promise one thing, they pledge one thing, and they never deliver. Now, I want to make an argument that the the new establishment that came out of the most recent former president, came out of Trumpism, I wonder if I can give you the tool to convince some people that they're not any different. They make some of the most outlandish, crazy promises. I'll give you just a couple around these criminal indictments. We've got a couple folks in Georgia, they're state officials there, claiming they, were, they want to have a special session of their legislature to do something about the prosecutor there. There's literally nothing they can do. There's nothing in, in Georgia law. I guess they could get together and try to pass that law. You would need you know, super majorities in both houses. You don't have it. But they make the promise that they can do it when they know they cannot. And they, you know what they do? They send out mailers and emails that say, give us money. You'll help us do it. They will 
send they will say out loud that well we can just pressure the governor of Georgia to do something about this prosecutor and that that can't be it that, that's not how it works in their state Georgia works very differently than for example Florida and so there can be nothing the governor can do but they're sending out the mailers sending out the emails and saying we'll give us money and we'll keep trying to pressure him there's grandiose promises about what's going to happen in any of these court cases they did the same thing after the 2020 election and what was going to happen in those court cases. And they know they're wrong. I'm convinced of that. They know they're wrong. But they continue to just say, well, give us some money. There's th- That ethic has been a establishment ethic on both sides for a long time. And what I'm just trying to tell you is the new establishment, the new power, they're not any different than the old ones. They promise you things they cannot do. And they know they can't do that. They know they can't do it. They don't even really want to do it because if they do it, then they can't ask you for more money. That's the thing that's happened with, um, I'll give you the example on both sides. Abortion has been the thing dangled out in front of the right forever. We will do something about abortion. So keep giving us money and keep voting for us. And then you get the majorities and they go, well, what can we do? All right, well, you shouldn't have pledged in the first place. They were mostly right, by the way. They were mostly right. There was nothing you could do at the federal level. But they, they dangled it out there. Why? Just to, just to raise money and try to win elections. That's what happens on, on the left. It has happened for a long time with amnesty for people who are here illegally. I think they do that with minimum wage. They keep just dangling it out there, keep voting for us, keep giving, giving us money because we'll make these changes. And they never actually do because then they lose the issue. They lose the thing to fundraise over. They, they lose the thing to drive people for. In this new establishment, it's not any different. They can't do the things they're claiming to do in the legal system, but they're asking for money and asking for power. And let me just encourage this. Don't give it to them and encourage others to do, uh, to, to not to do the same. They don't deserve any power. They don't deserve any money. They're lying, just like every other political establishment has done. Okay, final thing here. I'm not doing one of the biblical laws this week because I'm still working on that thing in numbers that I don't understand yet. And so I, I just want to finish here. I watched a, a video from someone I will keep nameless. One of the people that is uh, so strong theologically that I think should probably just not not talk politics. They're, they're not good at it. And by good at it, I don't mean not entertaining. It just seems like they're not living in the world where I live and how it and how it practically works. There are people who talk about politics sometimes like it's a fantasy novel or like it's a fantasy football thing. Like what if? Well, what if this crazy thing happens? Right, well, that's not how life usually works. And so one of the things that I don't tend to like to dabble in is uh, is stuff that is, is fanciful. It often does sound like conspiracy thinking. I, I made this illustration before. Like when someone says, for example, we, like 9-11 is an inside job or we haven't been to the moon, I just know this is probably not going to be a productive conversation. This person's already made some conclusions that I'm not going to talk them out of, and I don't have a ton of interest in talking them out of it. So this is probably not going to be productive. And then some folks, from so some folks talking about politics and culture, sometimes they say things so outside of how the regular order, like just how government works, that I don't, uh, yeah, I just don't know that they're productive, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to engage with them and argue with them. But in that, in that video, here's something I ran across that I want, I want to deal with because I don't know how prevalent it is in our audience, and I, I don't want it to be a prevalent thing. There was an underlying skepticism from this person about elections in general. 
He didn't say anything about elections being stolen. He did use the word rigged. And there was just a like a wink, wink, nod, nod, like to his audience. We all know the elections are rigged. Without saying it out loud, it was just a, a strong implication. Not an argument made, but just a strong implication, an assertion made. We all, we all know that the elections are rigged. I don't know that there's, there are things that are more damaging. There are worse things to say, but that's one of the really, really bad ones. One of the really bad ones, unless you have evidence and you are going to make some factual claims, to just cast doubt on an entire election system is irresponsible. It's unhelpful. I don't even know why people think that would help their own cause. We, we saw that in 2021. There are 300,000 more registered Republicans and Democrats in Georgia. There's, there's no reason that two, those two Senate seats in 2020, 2021 should have gone the way they did. But you had a bunch of folks on the right saying, you can't trust elections. So what happened? A bunch of people that would have voted for the Republican candidates didn't show up. Of course they didn't. They thought the whole thing was rigged. They thought there was going to be cheating, so why would they show up? You end up hurting your own cause, but also it is just irresponsible and wrong unless you're going to actually bring good evidence. And I'm not talking about the 2,000 mules, 5,000 mules, whatever it was called from Dinesh D'Souza, which if you if any of you want me to do a breakdown of that, I will. Really poorly argued, poorly documented. I, I could r- rip the thing to shreds. It's, it's not good evidence of any kind of, of voter fraud. I need to say that out loud. Uh, this, this person, I did this video that I want to remain nameless, used in that video one of my least favorite phrases, one of the phrases I cannot stand. Then the people that say it are often... Oh, I'll, I'll stop there. But he says, those of us who know what time it is. Okay. Yeah, you're special. You know stuff that we don't. the rest of us don't know. That's Again, it sounds conspiracy thinking. You just know the secret, and I'm not smart enough to know the secret. We know what time it is. And part of the implication is we know that there's cheating happening in the elections. If, if that's you, if you think there is cheating happening, happening in the in elections, I just want to incur, encourage you. If you don't have a really well-developed stable of evidence, like really well-developed arguments, and you've got command of it, it's not good for you to spread that kind of denialism and skepticism unless you, unless you really can bring something. Because you, uh, you cast doubt on a system that does a pretty good job. There's, it's not perfect, but does a pretty good job. And you, you cast doubt uh, on, in, in people that don't, that don't deserve to have that, and you'll create some crazy people out of that. If people start thinking elections aren't, aren't fair that they're all just rigged, you you will create, uh, you will add to, I shouldn't say create, you will add to our national deficit of trust. There's just no trust amongst people anymore, no trust amongst institutions. And a lot of that mistrust and distrust has been well-earned. Institutions and people have earned their skepticism. But we don't want to add to it irresponsibly. Add to it when it's necessary, when there are people who are untrustworthy and institutions that are untrustworthy, let's say so and try to make them trustworthy. But unless you've got really good evidence, don't do it. It's not helpful. It's, it's why it's very important to be clear about our terms. Like Even when someone says elections are rigged, what do you mean? Do you mean the media is biased? If you mean that, can you stop saying elections are rigged? Can you just say the media is biased? Can you say it's not fair that these stories over here are the ones that social media companies censor and the social media companies and YouTube, they push these other videos and stories that help one side. Can you, can you say that then? 
Can you say the social media companies and the media are biased and it rigs things and not say elections are rigged, like the actual process of going to vote and count them? Because the process of going to vote and counting them is pretty solid. And we've, we have found some problems, but they are not widespread. If you are going to say things like elections are rigged, just be really precise about what you mean. It's very irresponsible to put that kind of skepticism out in the world unless you're doing it with some specificity. All right, that's all I really wanted to do this week. I'm hopeful to come back next week and finally have for you an answer on this Numbers 5 thing. It's weird. started doing some readings, some video watching, and I'm, I don't know. I'll come to some conclusion on it and share it with you. I am grateful that you listened to the Corey Truax Show. I'll be back with another new edition of it next week. Uh, if you have things you want to cover, questions you have, or anything you want uh, any story you think I should, should get into, you can send those to me. Uh, just look, look for me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. So you send me a message there, or you can email Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. I'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.